host, Nick Olson, Managing Director of Cornerstone International Alliance. This podcast is your go-to resource for the latest industry trends and strategies to help you level up your M&A practice. As always, we bring in masterminds who are experienced, knowledgeable, and gracious enough to share how they have exceeded in the world of M&A with you guys as our listeners. So I'm excited about today's guest. Um, he has over 20 years of professional experience. On top of that, he found the time to go ahead and get two accounting degrees, two law degrees, um, and his experience has positioned him um, to be a strong leader um, in business development, investment banking, succession planning, and ESOP implementation. And today we are going to hit on the last topic, um, ESOPs. Uh, please welcome my guest today, Vice President with Corporate Transition Consulting, Jeremy Hewish. Jeremy, thank you for joining me today. Um, Thanks, being Nick. On my, Glad to on be my here. Show. Glad to be here. Thanks for allowing me to be here. Awesome, awesome. Um, so we recently met um, with uh, through a, um, a mutual contact and um, love the work that you guys are doing. And I thought, what better way to, you know, share that with uh, with with people like us, like all of our members, and to bring it on the podcast. So, like I said, appreciate you joining us. Um, I hit on a couple of uh, of your professional accomplishments, which uh, which <laughs> you know are uh, very uh, very. Um, um, admirable, but uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you know what you, uh, where you came from, and how you got to where you are today. Oh, sure, yeah. So I, um, I started out working for one of the big four accounting firms, and found that the the best tax work has been done by the attorneys. So about thirty years ago, twenty five thirty years ago, went to law school, and then they hired me back as in the Washington D.C. National Tax Office. And then, like many that uh, go to law school, you want to try your hand at being a lawyer. So I. Spent five years at a law firm advising some of the largest banks in the world about some of their, their international tax issues. Um, but uh, I realized that consulting middle market is where I wanted to be. And so I moved into that space. And for a lot of my career, I was busy helping very, very profitable companies. And that's who pays taxes with, uh, with just tax matters. And then I started noticing that a lot of my clients were being sold off to these things called ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans. And that piqued my curiosity. So about uh, nine or 10 years ago, started getting more into that. And eventually I jumped uh, both feet in and, and focused my practice right now in that space. And so, but, but, uh, so I still know, know a, a, a thing or two about taxes, but, uh, um, if I do my job right, not only does the business owner get to save a bunch of taxes when they sell their business, but I also benefit all the employees that probably would never have a chance to own a business, would never have a chance to have some of that American dream or a small slice of that pie that's being created. Mm -hmm. And so that's what generates my motivation every day to go and do this is that I can help the business owner that I was trained to do. But if they go down this path, then, then everyone else benefits as well. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. For that. Uh, great, great, um, great work that you do. And like I said, yeah, helping people realize the American dream is also uh, is also is always a good way to uh, to get up in the morning and stay motivated and, and do right by your clients. So appreciate that. So corporate transition consulting, um, you're a VP there. Tell us a little bit about the services that you guys provide, the type of clients you work with um, and all about uh, what you guys do there. Oh, sure. Uh, corporate or CTC or Corporate Transition Consulting, we primarily help clients uh, do the analysis, feasibility study, and implementation of ESOPs. That's our core of what we do. 
uh, we stick to our lane. And because we do that, that allows us to work with other professionals that have other emphasis. So we don't try to venture outside of what we do there. Our clients range all the way from uh, Hawaii all the way to the East Coast, and but they stay inside the United States uh, from as small as $10 million companies, as large as billion dollar companies. And so right mm -hmm. now in my deck, I do have a public companies we work with, but most are going to be probably held middle market companies. Mm -hmm. um, and so, tell, I mean, just for the purpose of the conversation, tell our listeners, you know, I know a lot of them may know, but, you know, what what is, you know, an, an ESOP, I guess, just from the you know, simplest of terms or the, the simplest of explanations just to set the tone for the conversation today? Sure. So the, um, an ESOP, there's a couple different ways I can approach this, this question. For one, it's, it's a qualified retirement plan sponsored by the company, similar to a 401k. Now, since your audience are M&A advisors, M&A professionals, um, it is a competitor in some ways, into what they are doing because they're trying to find an exit solution or a, a buyer for their client's business. That's either private equity, strategic buyer, or a competitor that can come in and pay a strong price for that. And they would look at an ESOP as competition because they don't sell to ESOPs. They sell to outside third-party buyers or be able to do a management buyout or something. But, but that's mm -hmm. so... Again, the technical definition, it's, it's a qualified plan. There's some tax benefits with it. And, but, but from a professional standpoint, it is another buyer out there. When you look at the range of where can you exit a company, well, a business owner can gift it to children, can sell it, a management buyout to key management, can sell it to the employees through this thing called an ESOP, or can do an outside sale or an outside option or a strategic buyer. So it is one of the ranges that is there. Yeah. Well, and we're going to dive more into that too um, in a second. But, um, you know, in our past conversation, you know, I've heard you say, you know, the largest MA firms kind of have their own in house ESOP department. We're talking today about the lower middle market. So, you know, um, like you said, uh, 10 to, you know, probably 50, 100 million in revenue size companies, you know, for, right. you know, there's a lot of definition of what lower middle market is. But, um, you know, so typically, shops like people in our group don't have their own ESOP department. Um, so that's kind of where you guys can step in when, you know, on, a, on an as needed basis, correct? That's right. That That's we, we are a large portion of my referrals come from investment bankers and business brokers that don't have their own in-house. So if you look at like a, a Hulahan Oloki or a, a Capstone Partners, they're large enough and have enough deal flow because because ESOPs don't fit every deal. And mm. so it's just a small segment of the larger span of just M&A deals out there, but they're large enough so that they have enough to support an ESOP practice. But your your smaller shops that are out there that still do great work, work with great companies, uh, but they don't have enough deal flow to support their own in-house ESOP uh, shop. Mm. And that's where my firm comes in is we're the outsource group that comes in and partners with them to do an ESOP transaction for their clients. So, I mean, you mentioned previously that, you know, um, in the M&A world, people might see ESOPs as a competitor. Um, but, you know, when, you know, when do you guys get involved typically? I guess two-part question. When do you guys get involved? And when should an M&A advisor seriously consider an ESOP as, as uh, an option for their client? Oh, sure. 
Well, there's there's really two entry points to bring me in. And the first and the more more common is that uh, I'll call it a failed M&A deal. And so the investment banker, business broker, sell-side advisor, what what have you, they're under contract with their client and they've tried to find a deal and it's now gone 18 months, 24 months, and the client is frustrated. They've, they're tired of paying all those, those monthly retainer fees or what have you, and they haven't been able to find something. And so the professional is faced with, what do I do now? Because the client is frustrated. I haven't produced a deal and I can't find one, not, not one. And so I'm going to walk away from a transaction fee. And so they bring me up and say, well, what about an ESOP? Because what I can do is I can create a buyer and I can create a buyer that can buy it at a fair market value price, not a strategic price, but certainly a fair market value price, which is fair mm -hmm. out there. And we can get a deal done in four to six months. And, um, and so often I, I like to tell the joke that I am the second choice to the prom. I'm not their first choice to the dance. They have, they're trying to sell it a strategic at a high price and, and great covenants and great terms and no clawbacks. And they want to do all of that. But if they can't do it, they can't find their right choice to the prom. They bring me in as a, as a backup and I can get the deal done. And so that, that would be the first option, uh, the, the more common one that I'm brought in and we, we get the deal done. The second way I'm brought in is that, your marketing and you come across a client that's just an ideal fit for an ESOP. And then the client, they've already vetted different options and they want to go ESOP. And so the, uh, the investment banker has probably invested about 30 minutes into this client and knows that he can't do anything. He knows that this client's going to go to an ESOP. And so the question is, as well, do you want to control that conversation, steer them towards me or just say, sorry, we can't help you. And uh, then just left the client to go out and Google an ESOP professional and try to find it there. And and in that situation, the the investment banker says, "Well, I know Jeremy, and we'll do a split fee arrangement. So I'll send him towards Jeremy." So uh, just kind of a lot to unpack there. Um, the what you just mentioned, the the investment banker, the advisor knows within a thirty minute conversation that this this client is not a good option for them to do a you know a full sale, but they might be a good candidate for an ESOP. Yes, can you can you you know why? What are the things that you you see or hear from you know investment bankers that are saying, or you, maybe you know from your own experience that why is a candidate not good for an M and A transaction, but is for an ESOP? Like, what are the components? Oh, sure. So, if we think about circles and overlapping, what's a good general M and A for strategic and uh, okay. private equity? What's a good ESOP? There are overlaps there. So there are there are some businesses and many of them that could go either way. Mm -hmm. But based on your question, let me go steer towards the ones that really only fit into the ESOP camp. Because right, yeah. let's be honest, if if you come across a deal that could go either way, the investment banker is going to pitch the third party sell because that's where they get their fees. And I have no problem with that. That's that's just the way it is. But mm -hmm. let's talk about the ones where it really makes sense to do an ESOP and they know within 30 minutes or so that they're not going to have a chance. And so let's talk about the fact patterns. One is let's say they have just a, such a unique type of fact pattern of a business, maybe unique manufacturing or something else that, that you just already know that there's not going to be many good buyers. I'll take, let's take construction. For example, mm -hmm. it is really hard to go find for a, a 2 million EBITDA or 5 million EBITDA construction company 
many outside buyers that want to come out there and do that because they say, why should I buy it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, now there are out there, but it, it is hard to find them. Whereas an ESOP may be a, a nice option for that. Or you may come across a client that says, I really want to pass this on to my, my top generals in my business and I want mm-hmm. them to run it and want them to control it. But at the same time, I want to get access to the cash and, and all the wealth that I built up. How do I do that? Well, you know, if you sell to an outside buyer, while they may say that, yeah, we're, we're going to be hands off, but they still own the company. They'll still control it. They'll still at some point have the option to go fire your person and put in somebody else. That's just, that's what's going to happen once you are gone. Or they may say, I really want to pass this on to my children, but I don't want to gift it to them. I want to sell it, but I want to keep the company within the family and with at least the control. And so for those types of fact patterns where they say, I want to benefit my, my, my children, my employees, my key person, and that is, that is just prime importance to what they do, that really speaks to an ESOP. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, but it, I'll, I'll tell you what doesn't speak to an ESOP. If someone says, I want the most money possible as fast as possible and walk away on day two, that's probably not an ESOP transaction because mm-hmm. an ESOP does require some time usually to get it done. And, um, but deep pockets are found in not ESOPs, but are found in private equities. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the, the the timeline for an ESOP. I thought you said four to five months. Is that typical timeline for when you you get you you get uh, connected with the client to when that transaction might might close? Is that typical timeline? Yeah, correct. That is typical. If they're ready to go, and usually if they've been working with uh, another sell side advisor, they have mm-hmm. all the documents stored in a data room. Everything for due yeah. diligence is ready to go. Um, and then we can turn it on, go interview the ESOP trustees, get the lawyers involved, do the negotiation and have the deal done in four to five months and funding done by then. Whether we need bank funding or internal funding or seller financing, we can get that all done. Um, mm. If they don't have any of that, well, this group of professionals know how long does it take for your clients to gather all that due diligence? It could take <laughs> months. And so right. just add on whatever that due diligence time takes to this, this clock. And that's how long it takes. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and you mentioned the first, um, way, um, that m advisors would consider an ESOP is that the deal has gone, yeah, like I said, 10, 12, 14, 18 months, whatever the case may be. And they're just not getting the traction, um, in that from the, the investment bankers that you've talked to and worked with and got referrals from. Why, why are those companies, you know, based on it becoming a good candidate for an ESOP, why, what, what things are you seeing in those transactions or lack of, you know, they're not getting the deal done that require, you know, that's like, okay, now ESOP might be a good, good fit. What are the things that you guys are seeing or talking about that are kind of, like you said, the fact patterns of, of transitioning from the sell side to an ESOP because that didn't work out initially? Oh, sure. So you're, you're asking why, why does the deal, why is it a failed transaction? Yeah, what, and, what's causing it to be a failed transaction to make it a good candidate for an ESOP? Yeah, yeah. I It's going to be a variety of things, and this does happen more than we think. I think I've talked to some various ESOP shops. I'm sorry, strike that, rewind. I've talked to various investment banking shops, mm-hmm. and I say, well, how many failed deals? And if they don't know me well, they don't know what I'm talking about, they'll say, oh, all of our deals close. And then once you get to know them and, and really dig into their clientele and what they've been doing, they say, yeah, we, we've got uh, 
uh, and, and truthfully, it's about 30% of M&A deals that they are out there pitching and that they get engaged to do, they cannot find a buyer for. Mm. And why can't they find a buyer? Well, let me, let me go through a, a few reasons, but this audience here knows us very well. If they've been doing M&A for, for many years, they know why clients just, this doesn't work. No, maybe they don't have a good successor management. Maybe the client sees the terms and conditions and the reps and warranties and gets turned off. Maybe it's the bait and switch that happens when the buyer comes in. Maybe maybe it's been promised too high of a, of a sale price. And you're promising a 6X and it should be a 3X or a 4X in terms of, terms of a multiple. And then the client has expectations set here and you're bringing them offers down here and you can't you can't deliver that type of thing. Like I had one, one I'm working on right now, huge company, um, and they do, um, uh, they do a lot. Let's just say a large amount of EBITDA a year. So they're they're definitely in the higher middle market size, not a lower middle market company. Mm-hmm. And they went out to a um, over a hundred different companies that they looked at and only got one offer. And they looked at that and it wasn't something good. It's just, because it's just unique. It's a good company, makes profit, strong profit every year, but it's just unique and no one was willing to step up and pay the price that, that needed to be done and mm-hmm. with the terms and all the other things that come with it because each each deal has some hair on it. And, um, you know, it's just who's willing to do that. But in an ESOP context, you're leaving the management team in place. You're bringing in an outside financial buyer, which is the ESOP, which is really self-financed. And so they're willing to deal with the hair as long as the seller has a plan in place to to handle that, which normally they would. And mm-hmm. so, but again, I, I'm probably rambling on too long for your your question. But there's a just to recap a variety of reasons. This audience, those that are experienced, are are well aware of those. And there's different ones that are out there. And that's where I can come in and say, let's partner together and get get a deal done for your clients. Mm-hmm. Are there? Yeah, that was a great that was a great answer. Um, are there any industries that you're seeing that you know maybe more prevalent to an ESOP as an option? Oh sure. Um, let me tell you the popular industries and the non-popular industries. And so the popular industries would be manufacturing is number one. Mm-hmm. Probably twenty close to twenty five percent of all ESOP deals are in a, some flavor of a manufacturing type of company. Uh, engineering, professional services, number two. Uh, constructions, number three or four in there. And those are some of the popular ones. I've done grocery stores. I've done um, processing companies, transportation companies. Um, who is is not good for would be like a small dentist office, a small doctor office, a small law firm, because those are highly tied to one or two people. And when they leave and retire, then yeah. the revenue goes, it may not stay with that business. It will go someplace else. And mm-hmm. so, but, um, but big ones could work. For example, BDO, the big accounting firm, just did an ESOP for $1.3 billion. That's billion. Uh, they sold a minority stake in their company to an ESOP. So here you have mm-hmm. one of the largest accounting firms in the country that certainly they have a plenty of people to run the numbers and see, does this make sense? And it did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, they have a, a good uh, expertise in ESOPs, ran it and and uh, it was a large transaction that hit the news a few months ago. Um, you had mentioned, you know, taking, like I said, the, the, maybe it's the whatever whatever way an M&A advisor, investment banker realizes that a, an opportunity is not right for a sell-side transaction. It's more for an ESOP. 
Um, you know, a lot of times I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong in your experience, sometimes they'll say, you know, it's just not a good fit. Um, we're going to walk away or maybe they refer them on to, you know, you know, if it's a smaller deal, maybe a business broker or, you know, you know, instead of just, I guess my point is instead of walking away um, as, as another option, bringing in someone like yourself to uh, give the client and, you know, another option to, to sell. Um, and how does that work, you know, when you work with an M&A advisor, because you walk away, say, you know, we're just not a good fit. You're not, you know, monetizing that at all. Right. But, you know, I know we talked, there's some fee sharing opportunities that you guys work with and for with those opportunities. So kind of explain that for, for us, if you, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. Uh, let me, let me take the, the second option first. So you spend 30 minutes with somebody. And you say, well, I could just let them Google and find somebody, or I can enter in a referral fee agreement with uh, CTC and Jeremy over there, and we can get paid. And so for those, we'll work out a, a referral arrangement. We'll sign a contract that we'll, we'll send a percentage of the fees that we collect on this net. Um, we'll send that over to them as a referral fee. And so that's mm -hmm. an easy one to do. What it gets harder but we can we can always solve it. What gets harder is when you've had the client under contract and you are their contracted sell side advisor. And then the question is, is well, how how does CTC get paid? Because there's myself, there's different attorneys, law firms that need to get paid, and the trustee and the, the appraiser. And the overall cost for an ESOP is not cheap. It's usually less expensive than the sell side advisor's fees, but it's certainly not going to be cheap. And you know, then we just, each one has to be customized to look at what we can do. Now I've done some deals where the self-side advisor is making a million dollars and they just cut out a portion of that to pay for the team that's going to come do the ESOP. I've got mm -hmm. another one that I'm working on right now where I said, hey, look, your fees are skinny enough and that certainly the value is there. Let's, let's not trim your fee at all. And let's just put the clients, client needs to pay for the ESOP and let's just run the numbers to show them because of the tax savings they get with the ESOP and because the costs to implement the ESOP were born out of the company uh, cash flow. They're not paid out of the seller proceeds that you get. Mm -hmm. And because of that, this is not really a, um, a huge burden that's going to be taken on. But we've got to pay both because for me, it's very important. The sales side advisor needs to get paid. They've worked for up to two years on this client and they need to get paid for the work that they've done. And they mm -hmm. should. I'm a big believer of that. But the team that comes in and does the ESOP, it's a busy marketplace. And if I can't pay them the, the normal rates, both mine and, and all the attorneys, then they just won't do the deal. And right. so, but the value is there. The client's going to have a great transaction. And it's just, uh, it's just figuring out what's the best way to pitch it and sell it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that brings me to my, my next question. How do you have that conversation? Um, you know, with your client and the the I guess the fee discussion as it relates to NISA, but also transitioning from you know the normal course of action as just a sell side you know engagement to NISA. Like, how how does that conversation go with the client, and what are the things yeah. that you can give our listener to you know kind of good to know kind of things to to kind of bridge that gap and have that conversation? Yeah. I, th I think part of it is thinking about the end in mind is I like to um, use numbers and to say, client, we, we promised, or we, our target is to sell your business for, I'm going to throw out a number for $10 million mm -hmm. and you would net after taxes, 7 million. Well, we propose 
that you sell your business for 10 million to an ESOP. Maybe this could be 9.5, but it'll be around the same range. It's fair market value. But if we make the tax election, you will keep 9.5 million. You won't keep 7 million because there's this thing called 1042 under the tax election for ESOPs to defer, potentially avoid the taxes. That's probably another podcast where we can get into that, how that works. I'd love to dive into that. Yeah, pretty cool. So so we can say, client, we can do this. But as part of that, so you can keep the 9.5 million or $10 million, there's some additional costs borne by the company and do that. But we're still delivering to you all that we talked about and promised when we started this process two years ago. It's a little bit different path. It's a more costly path. More lawyers are involved, but it's a great solution. And we think it's the best one out there for you. And so as long as we focus on not what's the initial cost, but we're delivering the results that we promised. It's a it's a little bit different path, but we got to get some more lawyers involved. But we're certainly delivering the value there. Then the client should be should be accepting of it. No client mm. says, "Hey, more fees. I love it. Let's do it." But uh, that that's just it's just got to be done by end result. Here's what we're delivering. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. So that's the initial conversation probably M and advisor has with their client, and you know, let's say. Client's receptive, right? Um, then is that next step to bring you in, you with the advisor and the client to talk about what's next or how does that go? Yeah, th- this is really important <clears throat> is when to bring in CTC and uh, Jeremy Hewish to talk about it because I'm not an expert in all things m I'm really good at ESOPs and I know that space well, but I, I can't pretend that I know everything in let's say pharmaceutical M&A, and I can't be the expert in there. If you're going to try to have a conversation about ESOPs, I would recommend earlier on bringing them in because what will happen, and I've seen deals fall apart on this, the M&A advisor goes to the client and says, oh, let's let's consider an ESOP as an alternative. And then they try to have an hour-long conversation with the client on ESOPs, and the client's going to ask them questions they don't have answers to. Mm-hmm. And if the client doesn't get answers right then, they get frustrated. They say, oh, this is too complicated. And then they walk away. Well, the reason why it's complicated is because they don't, they don't get the answers. Mm-hmm. But if, if I can be there for that initial conversation and I can answer all their questions, show them a quick PowerPoint, show them some boxes and some arrows and how it works out, then the success rate is very high. And so here's what I would recommend for the M&A advisor. Let's first have a discussion with me about it. And then just, just so we can get some talking points and then go to the client and say, client, I think something we can should consider is an ESOP as a potential buyer for this. There's some awesome benefits. And the client says, oh, well, tell me about it and say, let me get an expert on the phone and let's spend an hour and answer all your questions. But I, I would rather that the M&A advisor just spend five minutes and avoid trying to answer all their questions mm-hmm. and just get me on the phone because you have a much higher success rate there than to say, let me tell you all about it as an M&A advisor and pretend like you're an ESOP expert. And then the client will get frustrated because they don't know it. Again, I've seen deals not go forward because they just, clients clients say it's too complicated. Yeah. You know, just hearing you give that explanation, you know, it makes a lot of sense to build a rapport, um, build a, a relationship with someone like yourself. And over time, obviously, you get to know each other, get to know what each other does. Um, and build that relationship. So 
you know, you can have easier conversations on the front end related to ESOP and vice versa. And um, so bringing someone in like yourself, you know, a couple of times, you know, having regular contacts, um, you know, getting to know each other better and just like, like we do with our referral sources, right? Like I see it very similar to, you know, someone like yourself in the ESOP space that let's have a relationship with someone um, so we know more about it and then feel comfortable as an option to bring you in as an example um, to help these clients that you've spent two, you know, a year and a half, two years with. I think you know, that makes a ton of sense. I would imagine that's something you currently do. Yeah. And I, I think for many people, the way it works out is, look, look, most of their clients won't go ESOPs for these M&A advisors, but maybe one a year, one every other year that comes through or just on occasion, but they'll need someone that's their go-to person that they can pick up a phone and get an answer in five minutes versus mm -hmm. trying to fish around and Google the internet and what's this thing about an ESOP and how would this actually work. And so what I'd like to be is just their outsourced person. I don't charge, just pick up a phone, give me a quick call. I can give them a, an answer. And mm -hmm. then when the opportunity comes to partner on something, hopefully I'm their go-to person for that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's great. Jeremy, this has been a, a lot of great, great information. I appreciate you joining. Anything else um, you want to add that we haven't covered? Well, I think to keep within the timing, we should, we should, um, no, I mean, just say grateful for the opportunity to be part of your network, Nick, and to speak to your, uh, your audiences that you have out there. And hopefully we can do some uh, more work together in the future. Yeah. We'll have to do another episode version two on that, uh, that tax savings. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Um, so where can, um, you know, for our listeners, if they want to, you know, talk to you, um, find you, connect with you, um, where, where can we send them? Oh, sure. So I'll give my website and phone number. So website is corp, T-C, C-O-R-P, T-C.com. That's short for corporate transition consulting. Mm -hmm. And my phone number is 202-210. 0626. I'm also on LinkedIn and um, awesome. Or they can reach out to you. Yep. I can reach out to me. I can connect them with you as well. Um, again, Jeremy, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. And that is all we have for this episode of the MA Mastermind podcast. One thing that'll help Jeremy and myself out is, uh, you know, if you can like, share, comment this episode. Um, we are now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, YouTube. Um, but you can find all of our episodes at cornerstoneia.com slash podcast. Hopefully this was beneficial. Uh, you leave this, uh, listening to this uh, episode with a couple of takeaways um, and a new understanding or uh, maybe a, a re-energized understanding of what ESOPs are and how they can, uh, you know, help uh, clients when the situation is is, is right and um, how, they, how um, they can work together. So appreciate you joining us. Until next time, take care, everyone.